It's 2021 and everyone's talking about stagflation and Omicron. William Devane's telling you to buy gold. Tom Selleck wants you to get a reverse mortgage. But what are you going to do with a dollar of gold? You can't pre-sell your house out from under your kids if you don't own one. But I tell you what you can do for a dollar. You can support Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. For a dollar a month, you can get exclusive content and early episode access. And you can help pay for our beers. Go to patreon.com slash trrpod for all this and more. Welcome to this installment of Extra Rations. I am your host, Chris Miller, and today we're going to learn about Disco Demolition Night. On July 12, 1979, the day disco died. The story begins with Chicago rock DJ Steve Dahl. Dahl had just lost his job on his station, WDAI-FM, went from rock to disco. So he did what any red-blooded American would do, and he went full George Washington and started a war on disco. Now, the album rock DJ at Chicago's WLUP, or Loop 98, he called it Disco Demolition, and he wasn't just going to sit around and listen to ABBA and the Bee Gees take over the airwaves. Oh, no. He was going to do something about it. Initially, the opening salvos of his conflict were limited to playing one disco album per day and promptly destroying it while it was still on the turntable. Meanwhile, on the south side of Chicago, the local baseball team was struggling through the 79 season, and ticket sales were plummeting as fast as their standings in the division. Chicago White Sox owner, Bill Veck, was no stranger to outrageous promotions at baseball games. He had previously overseen the construction of a dynamite-filled scoreboard, designed alternate uniforms complete with incredibly small shorts, and signed designated hitter Eddie Goodell. Having designated hitter is not particularly noteworthy, but Eddie Goodell was 3 feet 7 inches tall. With the White Sox attendance hovering around 6,000 per game, Bill Veck's son, Mike, who is now the head of marketing, pitched the idea to the sales director of Loop FM, Jeff Schwartz, and Steve Dahl, to bring their war on disco to the White Sox home at Comiskey Park. What exactly was the plan to put asses in the seats? To fill a large bin with disco albums in the middle of the field, and then blast them into smithereens with explosives. It's not hyperbole. They were going to blow them up on the field. At first, however, Dahl was hesitant. With the tenants being so poor, he felt like even doubling the crowd would make him look foolish. Eventually, they reached an agreement. On July 12, 1979, Dahl arrived at the ballpark looking completely unfoolish in a homemade general's outfit complete with a helmet and fake medals. For the price of 98 cents and an album of your choosing, you could le- enjoy a leisurely evening at the ballpark and see a crazy person blow up your stuff. Not only did they sell 59,000 tickets... It's been said that more than 15,000 people were milling around outside, and thousands more simply snuck in to watch through the shorter walls in the left field facade. Mike Veck actually sent security personnel to bolster security at the gates and the portholes, as well as assist in collecting records. Remember this decision later, as I promise you, it will become incredibly funny. The stadium was totally filled, and not just to capacity, people were everywhere. The concourse, aisles... They were in the rafters. People were just everywhere. Dahl proclaimed it was the world's largest anti-disco rally. Sources to confirm or deny his claim are unreliable at best, but judging by the footage, it certainly seems like he wasn't kidding. To put the crowd size into perspective, the debut of Satchel Paige brought out an estimated 70,000 fans. 
Dahl's crowd, <clears throat> Dahl's crowd that day was said to have been demonstrably larger. Every concourse was filled with so many people that they became impassable. Vendors were having their concessions stolen and unable, and unable to give chase just because the throngs of stoners packed into every available square foot. The smell of marijuana was so pervasive that legendary White Sox announcer Jim Pearsall loudly complained about it in the press box during the broadcast. Pearsall, it would seem, was given the wrong strain as his day was about to get much, much worse. The Sox provided Dahl with a large bin to hold the ill-fated records, but it quickly became apparent that Chicago hated disco more than anybody had anticipated. A huge shipping crate was quickly repurposed to hold all of the records that were collected at the gates. As for the records that weren't collected at the gates before Vec dispatched additional security, they were hurled onto the field during the first game. Uh, White Sox outfielder Rusty Torres was nearly decapitated by an album flung from the upper deck of the crowd, Tigers designated hitter Rusty Staub, that's right, there were multiple Rusties that day, uh, refused to take off his batting helmet whenever he saw a record hit the field of play so hard that it stuck firm in the turf. In fact, so many players were nearly hit that they angrily requested for the game to be, to be delayed. Unsurprisingly, it was not. Now, everything was going more or less according to plan, including the White Sox losing the first game 4-1 to to the Tigers, when they brought out the giant crate full of vinyl. Steve Dahl, wearing his homemade uniform astride an actual Jeep, led the crowd in a chant of Disco Socks! Disco Socks! And this isn't even the part where things get weird. They blow up tens of thousands of disco records on the field without any real issue. The monstrous explosion on a baseball field that sent records more than 200 feet into the Chicago atmosphere was actually the part of the thing that they had planned to do that day, and the crowd loves it. So now they assume that everybody will simply go home. The players actually came out of the field and started their warm-ups for the second game. Now this is where it gets weird. Some fans decided to rush the field and stomp on some of the albums that weren't quite exploded enough for their liking. While a few of Dahl's anti-disco demonstrators were drunkenly stomping broken and or flaming records, and generally, generally being in everyone's way, there was a sudden realization. The cops and security didn't do anything because Vec sent them to the entrances. And then the floodgates opened. Thousands of fans rushed the field. A wave of sweaty, drunken, Chicago and rock and roll soldiers immediately began trashing the place. Fires were set. Property was destroyed, flaming records were being hurled like frisbees, people were randomly tearing up huge clumps of sod for some reason, multiple couples were seen having sex in the dugout, the bullpens, and some just behind third base. One man climbed the foul pole with a beer in his mouth before shimmying back down to an adoring crowd. Somebody dug up and stole home plate. The batting cage was completely destroyed. Harry Carey, the White Sox announcer, was desperately pleading for sanity and calm with his signature, HOLY COW! But because this was Chicago, his pleas fell on deaf ears. Owner Bill Vack and Harry Carey then began singing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, in an effort to restore order, while the stadium organist Nancy Faust was visibly emotional. Both teams had to shelter in their clubhouses, and the police were dispatched to clear out what was left of the field. To make things even more difficult, the fans that tried to leave before the bonfires began to rage found themselves padlocked inside the stadium by Mike Vex's added security, with Chicago PD guarding the only one that remained open as fans were still trying to sneak inside the stadium. 
took nearly an hour to resolve the situation, which had devolved into a full-fledged riot, and in the end, 39 people were arrested. Several injuries were reported. Riot control teams on horseback subdued what was left of the estimated 7,000 to 10,000 fans that stormed the field. And the field was so badly scorched from impromptu bonfires that the White Sox were forced to forfeit the second game to the Tigers. They arrested a whole bunch of people, smothered the fires, and the White Sox tried to play the second game. Despite the fact that at this point, well over an hour had gone by, there were still some horses in the stadium, and the field looked startlingly similar to the surface of the moon, the White Sox had a go. They even repainted the lines and reburied the stolen home plate. Ultimately, the powers of B stepped in and sent everybody on their way. In the immediate aftermath, stations across the country stopped playing disco records on the 13th, giving Dahl and his station the dubious honor of overseeing what is now collectively known as the day disco died. In fact, the Bee Gees personally blamed Dahl for the early demise of disco as a mainstream genre. So that, dear listeners, is the legacy of Steve Dahl on the day that disco died. Comiskey Park barely survived, and so did everybody that went, even though it didn't look like they would. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check us out with the rest of our catalog on iTunes and Google. Follow us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. Find us on Instagram at TRRPod. You can feel free to drop us a line. Shoot us an email at TRRPod at gmail.com for any questions, comments, suggestions. Anything we got wrong, we're down for corrections. And be sure to go to Patreon.com slash TRRPod for exclusive and early content for just as little as a dollar a month. So thank you, my friends. I hope you enjoyed our uh, shorter episodes with just me, your host, Chris Miller, not just your co-host, Chris Miller. And on behalf of the rest of the crew, I implore you all to stop listening to disco and hold fast. Hold fast.